Welcome to the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center Equity Spotlight Podcast. This podcast series will feature the center's equity fellows, national scholars from North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio who are working to advance equitable practices within school systems. Each episode will focus on a topic relevant to ensuring equitable access and participation in quality education for historically marginalized students, specifically in the areas of race, sex, national origin and religion, and at the intersection of socioeconomic status. My name is Sarah Deem, and I am an Equity Fellow for the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center and an Associate Professor at the University of Missouri. I'm your host for the podcast, The Future of School Desegregation in St. Louis, Missouri, Lessons Learned from the Voluntary Interdistrict Desegregation Program. Today, we will be discussing the history and future of school desegregation in the St. Louis metropolitan area with David Glauser. David has served as the Chief Executive Officer of the Voluntary Interdistrict Choice Corporation, also known as VIC, since November 2009. From 1996 to 2009, he served as the Chief Financial and Legislative Affairs Officer and Treasurer of the Rockwood School District, Missouri's fourth largest district. At Rockwood, he oversaw a total budget of over $275 million, an operating budget of over $200 million, and payroll for approximately 4,500 employees. Previously, David was the Associate Superintendent of Finance at Francis Howell School District, worked in a private industry as a vice president at City Corps and manager at Price Waterhouse. David is a certified public accountant and received an MBA from the University of Missouri, graduating summa cum laude. Welcome, David. Thanks, Sarah. David, can you tell us how you came to be involved with the Voluntary Interdistrict Choice Corporation and provide us with a brief history of the program? Sure. Um, well, about seven years ago, I was approached with this opportunity. And, uh, you know, one of my uh, things that I've always had a lot of interest in is having a little bit broader uh, exposure in the education field. So, you know, previously, uh, my focus was mainly in the financial area, but after working in education um, for, you know, close to 20 years, you know, I was ready to kind of take a step and to do something a little bit different. And so this, uh, you know, as I share with people, being the chief financial officer uh, or being the chief executive officer of VIC is quite a bit different than being the chief financial officer of Rockwood. And, you know, this has given me the opportunity to work a lot more with um, principals and superintendents and parents. And so it's been a, a, a very uh, good challenge and, and something that I've really uh, enjoyed doing. Um, a brief, uh, relatively brief mm-hmm. history of the program. Actually, the program... Uh, sort of was initiated, if you will, in 1972 uh, when um, a group of five black North St. Louis parents led by Minnie Liddell uh, filed a complaint in the U.S. District Court uh, related to the quality of education that they were being offered in St. L- the city of St. Louis. Um, that progressed through the court system for a long period of time, and finally in 1981, uh, Judge Hungate proposed a regional voluntary desegregation plan and asked for um, responses from 39 school districts. So it, he basically expanded it from exclusively the city of St. Louis to include the city of St. Louis and St. Louis County. Um, 
And then in 82, he said, you know, hey, if, if you guys don't uh, come together, then I'm going to come up with one district uh, that's going to include all of the city and, and the county. Um, and so ultimately in 1983, an agreement on a voluntary plan was announced and was endorsed by 20 of the 23 county school districts. And by March of that same year, a final settlement plan was approved um, and given to Judge Hungate, and then he approved um, us you know, moving forward at that point in time. So that the program basically continued under court, federal court uh, jurisdiction from 1983 until 1999. Uh, and then in 1999, the, tr- the program kind of changed a little bit, uh, and with the approval of a two-thirds of a cent sales tax increase by St. Louis City voters and a court approval of a new uh, or updated 1999 agreement, settlement agreement uh, on March 15th, um, the, voluntary inter- the old name, the Voluntary Interdistrict Coordinating Council, uh, was transformed into the Voluntary Interdistrict Choice Corporation. Interestingly enough, still the same four letters for the acronym VICC. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been proceeding from since 1999. And uh, so the, the program at that point in time was sort of envisioned to continue for 10 years from 99 to 2009 uh, because there were some concerns that a race-based school integration program couldn't continue in perpetuity. Um, and so our enrollment basically peaked at that point in time in 99. And so because everyone understood that the program was going to be gradually phased out, all the districts were just kind of gradually uh, reducing their enrollment over time. Um, In 2007, actually before I began working here, uh, all the districts unanimously approved a five-year extension. Um, So that took us uh, from, you know, 99 to 2009 plus five years. So now we're to 2013-14. Um, I came on board in 2009 and started immediately having some conversations in terms of possible future extensions. And so since that time, we've approved two additional extensions um, of the program. The the last one, or the, the, the next one, was, I guess, in 2012, and we extended taking new kids through 2018-19. So that's kind of where process that we've been in. So basically through this five-year period, I'm estimating we're going to probably take about 2,500 new students into the program. And then most recently, we approved, you know, what we've called basically a final extension of the program. So, you know, our our attorney is only comfortable that we can continue this for a limited amount of time. So, but he was comfortable with a total of 25 years. So that takes us out to now 2023-24, and so that last five-year extension, our, our emphasis is going to be upon uh, bringing siblings into the program uh, because obviously we feel like keeping families together is our highest priority. And then even beyond 23-24, um, all the kids that are in the program, once they're in, you know, if a new child comes into the program as a kindergartner in 2023-24, in theory, you know, he would be able to participate, he or she would be able to participate in the program until they graduate from high school in 2036. So um, someone did the math and figured out, you know, that, you know, our program, before it finally ends, will have operated for, you know, close to 50 years, or I think over 50 years. Um, so that makes us probably one of the one of the longest operating school uh, desegregation programs in the nation.
Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that was a brief history, but anyway, it's a history. No, that was great. Um, and just a few other questions about the program itself. How many districts participate in the program, and, and how has that changed over time? And what's the process for student enrollment? How are school districts deciding on how many spaces are available for incoming students, and is there a waiting list? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, right now we have 13 districts uh, participating in the city-to-county uh, portion of the program. So uh, there's 13 districts in the county that are still, uh, you know, that still have students enrolled uh, from the city. And then there's also a county-to-city aspect. So, you know, it's really, it was always envisioned to be uh, a two-pronged program. One, uh, the opportunity for uh, African-American kids from the city to attend uh, county districts, and then also the opportunity for non-African-American students in the county um, to attend students in the city. And so there's uh, 15 districts in the county that are also sending kids to magnet schools in the city. And in both cases, it's the, the purpose was to address longstanding um, harm, damages, whatever, that were done to African-American kids in the city to, and to increase the amount of integration overall. Um, the process for, I guess one other thing that I would mention, I failed to mention, in 99, one of the other things that, that uh, the organization did was we uh, initially divided the city into four attendance zones. Now, as the program has shrunk a little bit, we're now down to three attendance zones. So the idea is, depending upon where you live in the city, that affects which districts in the county you're eligible to attend. And the purpose of that was, you know, at least twofold. One was to make the transportation process as effective and efficient as we could um, from a cost perspective. And then the other uh, aspect, probably even more important, was to, you know, minimize the ride time for the kids so that, you know, they're, they're traveling a fair distance anyway, coming from the city out to the various participating county districts. So anything that we can do to make those ride times as short as possible uh, that was another aspect of that. Um, in terms of the process for enrollment, um, the the county districts basically provide VIC uh, with the number of eligible spaces. So they, you know, they look at their resident enrollment and where they have space available within their schools. And so then they will provide, say, okay, you know, I have space for this many kindergarten students, first grade, second grade, et cetera. Um, and then in the case of three of our larger districts, Rockwood, Parkway, and Melville, they actually encompass multiple zones in the city. So they'll give me available spaces not only by grade level but also by zone. Um, and so that affects which schools within their district they will attend. Uh, so that's kind of the initial mm-hmm. uh, thing is, okay, here's how many spaces we have. Then we send um, a letter out to all parents in the city, publish information on our website. Uh, We send uh, a letter to people that have applied in previous years and uh, didn't get in because of lack of space. And we send a letter out to all siblings. So um, siblings and students that didn't get in that applied in the prior year basically uh, are first in line, so they have an opportunity to apply um, generally in November and December, and then we start taking general applications uh, in January, and then uh, we take applications from January through June. Um, historically, 
uh, we, we've received uh, in the neighborhood of 3,000-plus uh, applicants the last, you know, three or four years. And, you know, we typically have somewhere between four and 600 available spaces. So, you know, what I share with folks is that we generally have six to seven times as many students applying as we have available spaces. Um, how, we, how we decide who gets selected, um, first priority is to siblings. That's uh, per the terms of our settlement agreement, and I think obviously the right thing to do. We want to keep families together, like I mentioned earlier. So siblings get first priority. Uh, second priority it would be to students that applied in previous years and didn't get in. And then third priority is simply based upon, you know, we date stamp every application that comes in. And so if you apply on January the 6th, you know, you're ahead of somebody that applied on January the 7th, who's ahead of somebody that applied in February or March. Um, the next step then is once if we once we determine that there is a space for a student that has applied, then we will send a um, request to their home school for a current report card, and a we also send what's called a behavior information form. So we do um, we don't select or, or, or deselect students based upon grades but we do take into consideration any behavioral issues. So if a student has a history of being disruptive in the classroom, uh, being expelled for fighting, having weapon charges against them, they're pretty much going to be not approved to, to come into the program. We look at two years' worth of behavior history uh, because, I mean, really, we have – Many, many more students applying than we have available spaces. So as much as possible, we want to make sure that students that uh, have an opportunity to participate in the program are most likely to be successful. Mm -hmm. um, they already, I think, have a little bit of a heads up because um, generally you have an, a more involved parent that's looking at, at additional opportunities for their students. So many of these students have parents that uh, are strongly advocating for their kids and wanting their, you know, kids to have an opportunity to participate in the program. The hardest, the hardest thing for me is the, you know, the conversation with the parent that's, you know, been applying for a couple of years and hasn't gotten in and just, you know, wanting to know what I can do. And, and there, in many cases, there's not much I can do. If there's not a space available for this child, um, it's just heartbreaking, but um, I have to, give everyone an equal opportunity and follow the rules that are in place. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of where we're at on, in mm -hmm. that, in that regard. So, yeah, that's the, that, I, I guess I tell people, you know, it's a good problem to have. There's so much interest in our program, um, you know, that the demand uh, greatly exceeds the available supply of spaces. And so that's, you know, it's a, a I guess a blessing and a curse, you know, it's great that the that families want to participate and it's disappointing that we can't allow it's just there's not enough space for as many kids that want to participate mm -hmm. to be able to do so. Mm -hmm. So that kind of ties into my next question about the community's perception of Vic. It sounds like many people want to be a part of Vic. So, you know, beyond the, the, um, positive aspects, are there any concerns about the program or how would you describe the community's perception? I would say, you know, I, mean, I guess there's there's multiple communities that we could talk about. Mm -hmm. One would be, you know, the the county district. So when the program, I mean, I, I remember because you know, obviously I was at Rockwood at the time. Um, 
when the program first began, there was probably some concern among county parents about, oh, you know, how is this going to affect my child's education? And, you know, all, there's, there's all these kids coming, you know, being bussed out to our district. Um, and I, I would say that there were some of those concerns for some period of time. And thankfully, I would say, you know, we've, we've definitely moved beyond that. You know, the program's been around for such a long period of time. I think the community's perception is pretty much this is, this is just how we do things. And um, and even to some extent, you know, I'm seeing this more and more, and I've really tried to uh, make this a key message as well, is that um, this program is a win-win situation. Um, it's for kids from the city, and I'm focusing on that because that's where the great majority of our kids are, is kids from the city coming out to county districts. For kids from the city uh, who want an option, and who are willing to make the commitment, and it's a big commitment because they, you know, have to get up earlier, they ride the bus for a longer period of time, it, you know, for the kids and their families that are willing to make this commitment, uh, it really does provide a good opportunity for them. Um, I think just as importantly, uh, I try to emphasize that for kids in the county, it's a benefit to them as well because as a society, we're becoming more and more diverse. There's lots of statistics on that uh you know i think in i think it was in 2012 was the first time that the majority of new uh children born in the united states were uh not white uh and then in i believe it was 2015-16 was the first time the majority of new kids enrolling in public schools were not white so as a country we're becoming much more diverse and so therefore, there's all kinds of research, educationally and from a from a business perspective, on how it's beneficial for um, a non African American child to be educated in a more diverse environment, and um, and so I think that's everyone gets that, and so you know when in in a few cases when some dis, when some county districts have you know even considered. Uh, pulling out of the program, you know, there was a lot of pushback from the residents saying, no, you know, this is a good program. We, you know, we want our kids to have, um, to be educated in a more diverse environment. And, you know, what in the heck are you thinking? Um, on the, from the city side, I, I, I mean, I think the city really, um, city families see it as a, as obviously they see it as a good thing because the the number of applicants is, is so much more than the number of spaces we have. Um, I'm, I guess I'm a little surprised. I, I haven't really heard much pushback. Uh, you know, we've tried to communicate multiple times in multiple ways that, you know, this, this last extension is the final extension of the program, and it goes through 2023-24. And maybe 2023-24 is just so far away that everyone's just kind of thinking, well, this doesn't really affect me. Um, and part of the reason why we wanted to do that five years was so that families would, in essence, know if, if, you have a, if you have a baby at home and that child is, you know, three months old and your older child is already in the program, this, this um, baby that you have at home will also be able to participate because we're going to give first priority siblings and we've, you know, allocated to make sure that there's going to be enough spaces for all siblings. So maybe that's why um, I haven't really heard a lot of, Pushback. I think. I think the other thing that's maybe contributing to that, um, and we so we are seeing a slight tapering off of the number of applications this year versus last year. I mean, still, 
you know, we'll still be 2,500 maybe instead of 3,000. Um, uh, but I think the other thing that may be contributing to that is, um, you know, Dr. Calvin Adams, who's the superintendent of St. Louis, uh, has done, you know, he's been there for, I think, eight years now. Uh, so they've had a lot of continuity of leadership, which the city hadn't had previously. So I think that's been a very positive thing. Um, Calvin's done a, a great job of um, providing additional opportunities for kids in the city, expanding gifted programs, and expanding high school uh, uh, options, and and improving the, the overall operation of the city, you know, in terms of uh, going from unaccredited to provisionally accredited to now they're fully accredited. Uh, they've, you know, approved, improved their attendance. They've improved their test scores. They've improved their fiscal management. Um, and so I think families are maybe starting to see attending a city school as um, as a reasonably good option as well. And, you know, the benefit of that is, obviously, it's a school right there in the neighborhood and right there in the community. So, um, But the, the, the other side of it is, too, we have a lot of, I mean, since the program has been around for quite a while, we have uh, a lot of parents that actually participated in the program personally, and then they, so they saw the benefit uh, for themselves. And then, you know, I guess not surprisingly, they want their children to participate as well. So we have many, I couldn't tell you for sure how many, but we have a lot of second-generation students and even a few third-generation students in the program, which is pretty, uh, I guess, uh, maybe a little bit unusual and, and also kind of exciting to, to see that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned that Vic isn't going to be accepting students to the program beginning in the 2023-24 school year. and. And I just wonder how and why the decision was made to discontinue the program, given its popularity and these second and third generation families participating in the program. Yeah, I mean, really, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an attorney, so I have to re- rely mm-hmm. on on our on our legal counsel. And and uh, Mark Bremer has been our you know the legal counsel for the program uh, since its inception, and uh, he's you know said that based upon various court decisions around the country, uh, he's basically comfortable with uh, the program going on for 25 years, so from 1999 uh, when the big organization was kind of reconstituted um, out to 23, 24, that's, that's 25 years. Um, and but, but I guess there's some legal precedent, court cases, et cetera, that, that in essence say that a race-based uh, school integration program is not allowed to continue in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has to have an end at some point in time. Mm-hmm. And um, how long, you know, you, you get three or four attorneys in a room, they might come up with different conclusions. Some some might say, well, 25 years is too long, and others might say, well, you could go more than 25 years. You know, we just have to go with our legal counsel's advice, and, and he's comfortable with 25. And so we've been talking about that really probably for some time. Um, and so since a race-based program can't continue in perpetuity, you know, we've, we have talked about, well, what could the program look like in the future? How could we, uh, like you said, you know, it's been a very positive thing for really the whole St. Louis metropolitan area. So how could we um, continue some of the benefits of the program into the future? And so one of the things that we've talked about um, and my board 
of directors is comprised of the superintendents of the participating districts. So as a board, we've been doing some strategic planning for a number of years um, related to all, all of this. And one of the things that we've talked about is potentially transitioning the program at some point in time into more of a socioeconomic program. So, you know, if, if the criteria was not based on race, but was based upon socioeconomic factors, um, number one, that would uh, likely be permissible from a legal perspective. And number two, it would still help us achieve um, a lot of diversity from a race-based perspective as well. So the, the key thing is, I guess, uh, from what the way I understand it from a legal point of view, is that you can't um, – use race as any kind of a criteria. You can't have any um, minimum thresholds for race, but if you, as long as you do it uh, on a socioeconomic basis and you end up getting some diver- some racial diversity as a result or as a consequence, that's, that's perfectly fine. Um, we'll probably start really diving into that maybe in a year or two. <clears throat> we're not going to wait until 2023-24 to to decide how we're going to proceed in that regard. Um, one thing that will be different, you know, all of our extensions uh, legally have only required a weighted majority vote. It's kind of been irrelevant because all of our extensions have been approved unanimously anyway. So, um, But if we transition the program from race-based to socioeconomic-based, that's enough of a significant enough of a change that it would mean that, would, number one, we would need a unanimous vote to be able to do that. So all districts participating would need to vote unanimously. And then um, potentially there's some districts um, in North St. Louis County that might want to also participate. And so they'd be new districts. So, you know, they'd have to voluntarily agree to say, hey, you know, we would be interested too in participating in this. And and I guess the, the vision of what that might look like is – you know, right now, um, St. Louis tends to be a little bit parochial. Uh, you know, there's 23 different school districts in St. Louis County, and uh, and ev- all the districts um, tend to emphasize how good their students are doing, you know, what a great district they have, and how well they're performing. And, you know, if you're from St. Louis, kind of the, the standard joke is, like, you probably don't get too far into the conversation with someone new that you haven't met that someone will ask, oh, well, where did you go to high school? <laughs> and my understanding is that's kind of a unique question to the St. Louis metropolitan area. That apparently that doesn't come up in, you know, if you live in Atlanta. But uh, it does come up pretty frequently in St. Louis, and I'm a lifelong resident of St. Louis, and I can vouch to, that that's probably the case. So I think what we're, what we're really thinking is how could we, how could we better – market, this St. Louis metropolitan area, if we could talk about not only, you know, how is District A performing versus District B, but how is the St. Louis, no matter where, you know, if a business is looking at moving their corporate headquarters here, no matter where you locate that business, you know, all of our school districts are top-notch, and and you can be comfortable that your employees and their kids will, will get a great education no matter where they live. So I, I think that that could be a benefit and also a challenge um, because um, getting the St. Louis metropolitan area to, to think more regionally um, is not always easy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
in terms of if you were to change to a socioeconomic base plan, um, it would just be the decision of your board. Would you have to go to the legislature? You know, I'm thinking about how funding works for the program. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think those are all really good questions, and those are all questions that are kind of on our list that as, you know, when we move in that direction, we would obviously want to sit down with, uh, at the very least, uh, the Missouri Department of Elementary and Secondary Education to make sure that um, that the funding mechanism that's currently in place would uh, still continue or or continue in uh, in a in a fashion that's similar to how it is right now, uh, maybe slightly different. Um, because right now, I mean, this the students participating in the program is what drives the funding of our, our of our organization. So. Um, you know, most of our revenue comes through the the state foundation formula. Um, we get a little bit of money. There's a Missouri has a Proposition C that was passed in 1982, a 1% statewide sales tax that also is distributed to all districts on a per pupil basis, and then we get some reimbursement for our transportation costs. By no means anywhere close to even half of of those costs. So how would that how would that funding look in the future if the program was revised and different? And, um, you know, would we have the support of Missouri Department of Elementary Second Education? And ultimately, would we even need potentially uh, some new legislation to give us that authority to continue as well? Those are all mm -hmm. um, questions that would need to be considered and addressed, but we, we're not to the point yet where we've gotten there. Mm -hmm. we, I guess we first have to determine... Uh, is this something that people want to participate in? And then, you know, assuming that there's some interest in, in moving forward, then the next question is, how would it work operationally and financially? Mm -hmm. So given your experiences with Vic, um, how do you think we can build support for interdistrict desegregation programs across the country? And, and do you even think this is the way we should move forward in order to um, achieve diverse schools? Well, there's probably, I, I would say there's a number of things that, that are key. Um, one is, you know, getting the local community on board and helping everybody see that uh, it's beneficial for all students. Uh, it really is a win-win thing uh, for kids to be educated in a more diverse environment. It's, it's good for uh, the minority students, but it's good for the kids that are uh, not minority students as well. Um, so that's, that's kind of the first thing is, is, I guess, selling the local community that, hey, this is a win-win good opportunity for all. Um, the next thing I would say is, you know, the programs that, that I've seen over, around the country that kind of haven't been as successful, in many cases they haven't had um, an adequate level of funding to make it happen. Uh, right now, um, and really for the last many years, we've been right around $7,000 per student in funding. So in other words, every county district that takes a, a student from the city, um, VIC pays them $7,000 to contribute towards the cost of educating that child. Um, and, you know, as an ex-financial kind of guy with expertise in that area, uh, occasionally I have to get into discussions with the school district or with their board about uh, the whole average cost versus marginal cost. 
because most of our county districts, you know, I'd say actually probably all of our county districts, their total fully loaded cost of education is more than $7,000 a student. So someone that's a little bit uninformed might say, well, gosh, you know, our cost of education is $12,000 and you're only paying me seven, so we're losing $5,000 on every student. And I say, well, that's really not true because a lot of, you know, when you say your cost is $12,000, that includes a lot of overhead costs that whether you have a student from our from Vic or not, those are not going to go away. So really the question is, what is the incremental cost of educating this student? And since you have the opportunity as a, as a county district to decide where you have available space for these kids, you know, if, if, if I send you two kids and you put them in a second grade classroom that has 18 students in there and now there's 20 students in there, how much did your cost really go up? Probably not very much because, you know, all the school district administration is there, uh, the, the school local administration is there, the custodial costs are there, your heating and cooling costs, <laughs> uh, the, the teacher's already there in the classroom. Um, I'm going to pay you $14,000, and your incremental costs are basically some books for these kids um, and supplies. Um, and, and, and so the analogy that I use that people can usually relate to is, you know, the, the Southwest Airlines analogy. They, they have dynamic pricing, and if they have a flight and they've got two empty seats, um, they're going to they're gonna, they want the plane full because uh, the plane's already flying from St. Louis down to Orlando, and, uh, and the cost of putting two more passengers on there is pretty minimal, but if they don't put anybody on there, they're not going to get anything. So people can usually relate and connect to that uh, analogy. Uh, but I think, I mean, the, the point is there has to be an adequate amount of funding for uh, districts to see it as a beneficial thing for them from a financial perspective. I mean, that's that's the third criteria. The most important is how does it benefit kids from the city? How does it benefit kids locally? But financially, it has to work too. Otherwise, I mean, I've seen other programs that have lower levels of funding. Uh, sometimes you know, they're not able to get the same level of participation. And then I think the other thing that happens is that, that we do that is very important is we coordinate, oversee all of the transportation. Um, so school districts don't have to worry about that. We are responsible for uh, doing all the, the bus routes, taxi routes, you know, however we transport those kids, you know, that's our job, that's our cost. We, we bear the cost of doing that, and, and school districts don't have to worry about it. Um, a long time ago, there, you know, I think uh, Vic had challenges with, you know, getting kids to school on time. Um, I'm not going to say that that never happens, but it's much, much less of a concern, and we Typically, um, you know, our transportation contractors, um, we do a survey every year, and we're 80 to 90 percent of the principals that respond to that survey are either very satisfied or satisfied with the level of transportation. But that's, that's important, too, because uh, a big part of any program like this a lot of times does involve transporting students, and so if... If we can take care of that, and they don't, and and the participating districts don't have to worry about it, uh, that's just one burden that's off their shoulders that they can just leave in our hands. Mm -hmm. So, what have been some of the major successes of Vic? Looking back um, to your time, or even before you came to Vic. Well, I think uh, you know, 
I guess we can debate whether or not we're the the uh, the biggest longest. I know we're not the longest operating desegregation program in the country, but we've done some research, and so since the inception of the program. Um, through now, over 70,000 students have participated in the program, and over 60,000 of those were kids city to county, and then over 10,000 were kids county to city. And we look at a lot of different things. I mean, we look at um, test scores, we look at attendance rates, we look at graduation rates, and we compare all those things to um, how, you know, what the performance was in the city. And the good news, you know, well, I guess the good news, bad news is we have historically been much better uh, on, in all of those objective-type uh, measures. Um, I guess the, uh, the other good news is, because, is that the city is improving, and so um, the city is closing that gap. And, and, uh, and to me, that's, a, that's obviously a good thing, and maybe just the existence of our program has helped that to occur. Um, the other thing I, I, I always emphasize, though, you know, all of the statistics are not completely objective. Uh, <laughs> certainly, we have a responsibility to look at attendance rates, graduation rates, and test scores, and we do. Uh, and we uh, provide reports to the board annually on, you know, how our test scores are compared to uh, resident test scores. Uh, they can compare that to test scores in the city uh, and see that kids participating in our program are are doing well. I think, in my opinion, probably just as important and maybe even more important is all of the anecdotal stories because we do um, six publications a year. We do a, a parent link th three times a year, and then we do a volunteer three times a year. Parent link goes to the parents uh, of our families uh, participating in the program, and then the volunteer goes to all of the school districts, administrators, teachers, so they can see some of these, I, I guess I call them human interest stories, in terms of how the program has changed lives. And so, you know, we'll profile students that have participated in our program that are now um, doctors, um, gone on to, you know, be, a, you know, a superint you know, superintendents of school districts, principals of school districts, teachers in school districts, um, uh, airline pilots, uh, it, I mean, the list goes on and on, and you got 70,000. Now, you know, I, I always tell people, let's be honest, were all 70,000 of those kids successful? No. Um, but that's that's true in any circumstance. We have a lot of, but we do have a lot of great stories of kids that have been uh, extremely successful, and even kids that maybe struggled in the program and and maybe didn't even do that well academically. Uh, I mean, one one particular student comes to mind. Basically, dropped out of high school, didn't graduate from high school, um, ended up going to prison, uh, and it took until I think late twenties, early thirties before he you know got out of prison, uh, went back, got his uh, uh, GED. Um, started his own business and uh, now, you know, operates a couple of different businesses, employs, I don't know, 10, 15 people. And, uh, you know, we actually talked to him and interviewed him and said, you know, what was the breakthrough? What happened? And he said, well, it just, it took me a while, but at some point in time, he goes, I, I saw, um, from the school district that I was in, you know, a bunch of families that 
did have their own business or that were successful. And I just said, you know, hey, I saw that as an example. And there's no reason, if they could do this, there's no reason that I couldn't do this as well. And and so, you know, that that's just an example of sometimes everything that you want to measure is not on a piece of paper mm-hmm. uh, and is not a test score, um, but it's just exposure to maybe a little different environment and seeing that, uh, seeing another uh, culture and saying, wow, you know, there's, if they can do this, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so those are, I mean, that's, that's one of the most enjoyable things about my job is, is seeing um, kids be successful. That's what we want to do. Um, there's challenges along the way. Um, there, you know, it's, it's a big, for many of these kids, it's a big adjustment to go from, come from the city and come out to a county district and have differing expectations. And, and so the other thing that we've, you know, we've historically had a counseling staff here uh, at Vic to work with our students and their families. And the role of our counselors is to do whatever it takes to help kids be successful. So that could be, you know, if they're having discipline issues, they're going to help with that. If they're having just conflicts at school between um, someone at the school, conflict with a teacher, whatever, how can how can we help them be successful and ultimately graduate from the program? Um, and, and our counselors just do a phenomenal job. We've got, you know, five folks that uh, many of them have been here since the inception of the program, and so they have a very good understanding of what it takes for our students to work through the challenges, whatever those might be, and, you know, and we're going to be their advocate to, to help them succeed. Yeah. So moving forward, as you begin to think about how Vic will be reimagined post-2023, um, 2024, how do you think diversity should be defined and measured? And I'm also interested in how VIT kind of operates in this, in a much different educational landscape than when it first was um, created and implemented given charter schools and school choice. Yeah, I mean... Um Diversity, in terms of how it's defined, is it's kind of evolving, I think, as a nation, right? Because, uh, like I alluded to earlier in our conversation, you know, we're becoming much more diverse as a as a nation, and so you know, traditionally, it's been um, more of a focus on race, but now, you know, I think, you know, we're we're looking at expanding that definition to include more than that, uh, to, uh, to include socioeconomic issues and, and things of that nature as well. Um, you know, I really hope that, I, I hope the program does continue in some shape or form beyond 23-24. Uh, you know, I think that uh, we've accomplished too much and come too far for it just to kind of come to an end and, and not continue in some way. Um, so I, I think that at some point in time, you know, people will hopefully look back and say, um, wow, uh, I mean, St. Louis doesn't necessarily always have the reputation for being the, um, the at the forefront of things of this nature. And I think this, you know, our program is an example of one of a program that has worked 
really well and has kind of stood the test of time uh, and been successful in most ways that you would, you know, however you would try and measure it. I think you would, most people would say, yeah, it's, it's been a good program. Um, there were some bumps along the, the road at the very onset of the program, but now uh, it's been around for quite a while and it, and it works for kids. Uh, it, it works for families and it, it works for the community. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, David, and your expertise. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sarah. Enjoy talking to you. This podcast was brought to you by the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. To find out about other Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center podcasts and other resources, visit our website at www.greatlakesequity.org. To subscribe to a podcast, click on the podcast link located on the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center website. The Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center, a project of the Great Lakes Equity Center at Indiana University, is funded by the U.S. Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout the 13-state region. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the U.S. Department of Education, S004D11002. However, these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. This podcast and its contents are provided to educators, local and state education agencies, and or non-commercial entities for the use for educational training purposes only. No part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or in any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording or by any information storage and retrieval system without permission in writing from the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. Finally, the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center would like to thank Indiana University School of Education, as well as Executive Director Dr. Kathleen King-Torius, Director of Operations Dr. Sina Skelton, Associate Director of Engagement and Partnerships, Dr. Tiffany Kaiser, and Instructional and Graphic Designer, Dr. Jasur Dagwi, for their leadership and guidance in the development of all tools and resources to support the region.